you, Pastor. Um, man, I've, I've thought about this moment many a times, and I'd known it was going to come for a while, but I'm, I'll never forget when I got saved, and all I had known was the Joel Osteens of the world, the, the preachers that suck money out of you, and that's all they want, and I was against church, and I didn't want to have anything to do with the Lord's church, but I started studying the Bible a little bit more, and I wanted to be publicly baptized, and the Lord led me here, I mean, right across the street from my house, and wow, it became my home before I could even get the chance to be baptized, and praise the Lord, but ooh, breathe, Corey, I didn't know I'd be this nervous, but I thank God for this church so much, and the men that have been there to guide me and lead me, and I thank the Lord for all the fellowship that I've had here, and there's so many blessings, not talking about physical, but there's so many rich blessings that only God can give through His people. And I remember when I surrendered to preach on Mother's Day of 2017. I love you, Mom. <laughs> um, I, I surrendered to preach, and I, I remember thinking, what, what would you have me to do, Lord? And if it means me dying in a foreign land for your glory, if it means me going out and being a missionary to the Middle East, I, I'll do it, Lord, but... He continued to lay my heart on the church, and I truly believe that Christ died for His church, and we don't have enough pastors today, and I don't know where it might be or when, but I love the church, and I know God laid it on my heart to preach to His church, and I thank each and every one of you, and um, I'm proud to be a part of the Baptist heritage. I'm I'm proud for the men that have gone before me and shed their own blood, been burned at the stake, so that I can be here tonight preaching the truth. I believe the Baptists are the true church of God. I believe if you shake the Baptist line, it'll go back 2,000 years to the Sea of Galilee where it all started. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter number 26 tonight. Matthew chapter number 26. Now, when I, um, I remember when I first gave the, the first lesson over at the villas, and I, I promised myself and God that I would never pretend to be something that I'm not. I know that man when I look in the mirror. I know who that man is. And um, it reminds me of when Paul said in Romans chapter 7, Oh, wretched man that I am. I know who I am at heart. And that was Paul saying that the one who spread the gospel to the Gentiles, the one who was caught up into heaven, he said, oh, wretched man that I am, and I am no greater than he. Oh, wretched man that I am, I'm just a sinner saved by the grace of God. And by the way, that's the only way anyone could ever enter into heaven. It's by the grace you're saved through faith. Now, where you place your faith is of the utmost importance. And by faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone is the only way to receive the gift of eternal life. There are a lot of different ideologies that float around today. I think the most popular one has to be the coexist or the universalism. Everyone just gets to heaven somehow. Well, I'm sorry to burst your bubble if that's what you believe, but that's farthest thing from the truth. There's no such thing as coexisting. God is that Muslim man? Or I worship the same God as that Catholic man? No, they have idol gods. I serve the one true God. God hates religion. He wants you to have a relationship with Him. He hates religion. And religion is the most confusing thing, I think, in, 
in the world today. It's not about different religions. It's about Jesus Christ and Him alone. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by Me. That baptismal waters won't save you. I can't save you. Neither of our pastors can save you. Religion can't save you. And no amount of works can save you. I could give all my money away to charity tonight, and that won't get, grant me entry to heaven. I could do all that. I could serve the rest of my life and feed the poor. That will not get me entry to, into heaven. And by the way, with the way our heart is, we cannot do anything good even if we tried to. Just look at Leviticus and Deuteronomy. There's no way that man can keep all of those sacrifices and laws. I just recently read through Leviticus and all the different sacrifices and it left me scratching my head. How did they keep up with all these different sacrifices for different things? I admit there's no way I could keep up with them. There's no way that man could keep up with them. The laws and sacrifices and the Ten Commandments are there to show us just how sinful that we are, yet they're God's standards. And without meeting God's standards, there is no way that He would allow us to dwell with Him in heaven. Thank God that Jesus fulfilled the law for us. With Him, without Him, we can do nothing. The Bible tells us that we are drawn away by our own lust and that our heart is deceitful above all things. Some might say, well, so-and-so down the street lives better than all you Christians out the church house. Sadly, they might be true. But that doesn't mean that they're good in the sight of God. Every single person here tonight, whether you believe so or not, has, in some form or fashion, broken the laws of God. The Bible tells us that even liars shall have their part in the lake of fire. Our sin makes us the enemy of God. And due to our sin, God will be just in sending us to hell as punishment for it. We would fail to see the goodness of God without the mention of hell. And the truth is, if we saw our sin as God sees our sin, we would be driven mad with ourselves. We all have sin within us that we know not of. Only God knows about it. If y'all knew me the way God knew me, Y'all wouldn't let me stand up here. If I knew y'all the way God knew y'all, I wouldn't want to preach tonight. It's just the truth. It's the truth. If you knew the person sitting next to you the way God knew them, you wouldn't want to be anywhere near them. That's just the God's honest truth. Our sin debt is so high that it took heaven's best to reconcile us. And I'm saying all this because I believe there's a lot of confusion about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and what happened and how it atoned for our sin. I believe a lot of people know the facts. They know about the crown of, thor uh, of thorns. They know about the nails. But they don't know how a man dying on the cross, how God dying on the cross 2,000 years ago could save them from their sins. So we're in Matthew chapter number 26. Let's go ahead and start in verse 36. Verse 36, Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. 
Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little further. I like that. And he went a little further and fell on his face, praying, saying, prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Now, uh, I think it's interesting how there's no account of this event in the book of John. Because if you continue reading on, you realize that John fell asleep. And it kind of just picks up where Jesus awoke them and Judas came to betray him. But I just wanted to mention this. It doesn't really go along, but I wanted to make it a point. There are people in the background, like such as Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that don't get enough credit for what they do. But they were in the background recording every bit of this event. While John was in the inner circle, he got all the praise from the Lord, yet he failed him at his most critical moment. So here in our text, the Lord had already commissioned the, the, the Lord's Supper. And there, this is the last night that He has here on this earth before He goes to be crucified. He has prepared His disciples to live a life without Him. And we are seeing His final prayers to the Father. Some of the final cries that the disciples get to see to the Lord. And I believe that Gethsemane was the entryway to Calvary. It was the doorway to the cross. Notice in verse 38 that he was exceeding sorrowful. What was the first thing he did in his time of trouble? He prayed to God the Father. This paints a picture of his perfect obedience. He didn't look to Peter, James, and John, though he wanted them by his side... He didn't look to them. Naturally, we would look for people that could help us in a time of need before we ever get spiritual and go to God our Father. Most of the time, we look for people around us. Maybe they've had the same issue that I'm having. Or maybe I'm, maybe they've been through some of the same things that I've been through. I can look confide in them. But rather, Jesus goes to God as Father in perfect obedience. Jesus was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He took on the flesh for reason of being in perfect obedience to the Father, something that we are completely incapable of. Without His perfect obedience, I believe the Bible would be a lie tonight. Over in verse 56, it says, But all this was done that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. That verse is speaking of Jesus being led away to face the cross. Yet without His perfect obedience... He would have never willingly went to Calvary. Verse 53 tells us that he could have had legions of angels by his side to prevent him from being crucified. Yet he decided not to call upon them. Not as I will, but as thou wilt. Without his perfect obedience throughout his entire life. He would have not been a propitiation for our sins. God required a spotless lamb, one without blemish. Though sin has left a black stain. The one who lived the life that we cannot. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. In the book of Romans, Paul says that we are saved by His life. If the Lord didn't live a perfect life, we would be in deep trouble tonight. It is mankind's greatest necessity that he lived in obedience to God the Father without any sin found in him. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. 
Even when he was facing death, it was not about his will. Wow, that's contradictory to human nature. When we're facing death, that was the, that's the last thing we're thinking of is someone else's will for our life. We, we naturally want to save our lives, but he willingly laid his life down. He was completely sold to the will of the Father. He is the incarnation, you could say, of God's will. In his prayer, we also see his humanity. And it's important that we see his humanity. A lot of people fail to see the humanity of God. I believe that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh tonight. And I believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate. The proof is all right there. He controlled the wind and the waves. He gave sight to the blind. He gave hearing to the deaf. He fixed the paralyzed. He cleansed the leper. Jesus is Creator God. He can fix any problem that comes about. He is God over all. I don't see any other a Pope or Muhammad, any counts to them doing that. People believe in all kinds of false religions. Buddha didn't do any of that. There's no account of him cleansing the leper. Only Jesus Christ can do that. Only God in the flesh can do something like, like that. With God, and the Word was God, and it goes on in verse 14 to say that the Word was made flesh. That's the importance of the virgin birth. He was completely God, yet completely man. Now, sin is a disease and it's passed on through the seed of man. And in order for him to be without the sinful blood that we are plagued with, his conception had to be of a divine manner. In our text, we can see him as God, the son. And in many different places in the Bible, Jesus calls him himself the son of man. And here he's telling the disciples that his soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. That's something we can relate to. He has emotions as we do. He understands us. He was perfectly and fully human. 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God and one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. He was a man and He understands our deepest trouble and our deepest cry. The Bible tells us many different ways that prayer can be lifted up to God. Whether it be lifted with holy hands or whether it be bowed down. But in Gethsemane, Jesus fell on his face. Now, a man by the name of Charles Lawson, I don't agree with everything he says, but he had a bunch of good comments on this that helped me out. And he said that those nails pierced his soul before they ever pierced his hands. In the Gospel of Luke, you can see that he was in so much distress of what was to come that his sweat was as great drops of blood. When Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss, he didn't kiss a perfectly smooth-skinned Jesus like you'd see on the movie. I imagine Judas kissed a tearful face that was covered in dirt, grass, and blood. Most people wouldn't believe that a man could sweat blood, but if, if it's in my Bible tonight, I believe it. Now, there were only about 100 confirmed and documented cases of people sweating blood that I could find. And the majority of those cases were prisoners on death row the night before their execution. Even more interesting is after their execution, years later, they were presumed to most likely be innocent of the crimes that they were accused of committing. They sweated drops of blood 
and grief of what was to come. Everything about the trial and death of Christ was illegal under Jewish law. It was the biggest injustice this world has ever seen. Jesus was innocent in the sight of God and blameless before the world. But you and I stand before God tonight guilty. We are guilty before God and we are to blame before the entire world. Jesus said that if you look upon another with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. Or if you have hatred towards another, you have committed murder within your heart. These are God's standards, not man's. If we were to stand before God's judgment throne tonight, we would be found guilty on all charges. We are murderers, we are adulterers, we are liars, we are thieves in the sight of God. And there will be no chance to claim mistrial or false accusation because the Lord's judgment is perfect. God would be just in dishing out the punishment that we have earned. Now this cup that Jesus is speaking of, this cup that He's talking about, it is appointed unto every single one of us. But what was in this cup? Let this cup pass from me. What was in this cup? Well, there are a few different aspects to this cup. Leonard Ravenhill gave a great example of this cup. He said it was about five till five and he's walking in through Manchester, England and it's almost dinner time and this, he walks by this real humble house and real humble looking and this woman pops out the door and says, hey, I know you. You're the pastor of the church. He said, yes, that's correct. And he said, she said, well, I sit at the back because I can't afford to put anything in your offering. He said, well, that's all right. And she invited him in for tea. And he looked at his watch. He realized, well, it's about time for me to get home and have supper. And she said, I know why you won't come in. You won't come in because I'm poor. He said, all right, all right, I'll come in. So he goes in. It's the kind of house that smells and kind of house that you hold your nose when you go in. There's no room to walk. And the table's full. It's just enough for two people to barely squeeze into. And she offers him tea. And she pulls a cup out of the sink this filthy sink that has been full. She hadn't done dishes in months. And she grabs a pot of tea that had probably been sitting there for three or four days and pours it in this cup. This cup had slime and corruption all in it. It was disgusting. And she filled it with that black cold tea. And I guess he saw that cup and kind of shied away from it. And she noticed that and she goes, Drink it! Drink it! It was in the garden that God told Jesus to drink it. This cup in Scripture is full of disgusting and filthy sin. It is a picture of our sin. Takes, for example, the works of the flesh found in Galatians chapter 5. Adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, and revelings. All of the things that make us nasty and vile are in that cup. This is scriptural. Remember in Exodus chapter 32 when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and he saw the children of Israel worshipping a golden calf, an idol? What did he do? He ground it to a powder and he made them drink their sin. All throughout history, kings and queens had taste testers. There were kings and queens that had servants that would taste their drinks for poison. 
And Jesus made himself lowly enough to taste our poisonous cup of sin. He drank it in full. He didn't only taste it. He drank the entire thing that we might not drink of it. He drank the sin of the world. Jesus had no sin in him, but the sin of the world was upon him. Now there's another aspect to this cup though. And it's full of God's wrath. It's full of God's wrath that's due you and I as sinners. Isaiah 51, 17 refers to the Lord having a cup of fury. Psalm 75 refers to a cup that is poured out upon the wicked. Jeremiah 25, 15 refers to the wine cup of His fury. Revelation 14, 10 refers to the wine of the wrath of God. So, all throughout Scripture, Jesus' wrath, or the wrath of God is pictured in this cup. And I believe that Jesus in His human nature was wrestling against great fear and sorrow in Gethsemane because He was the facing the wrath of Almighty God. His prayer starts with, Oh, my Father. And as Pastor Stone mentioned a few messages ago, that phrase, Oh, is dripping with emotion. It's a cry. In the Gospel of Mark, this same event, it tells us that He cried, Abba, Father. That's a cry as if a child were crying unto their parent. Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Now look in verse 42, when Jesus goes to pray the second time. It says, He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. This cup was already appointed unto him to drink. It was his to drink. Another quote by the man of Charles Lawson said, The victory was won in Gethsemane and paid for on Calvary. I find a lot of truth to that statement. The victory was won in the Garden of Gethsemane because that is where He willingly submitted to facing the wrath of God for us in our place. It was all just paid for at Calvary. Not as I will, but as Thou wilt. When studying this, it reminded me of a message that Pastor Stone gave a while ago in Second Kings titled, Death in the Pot. There was death in that cup. Not a physical or carnal death, but an eternal death. The Bible speaks about a second death when a poor lost soul is cast into the lake of fire. That's what hell is. It's God's wrath being poured out for eternity. You could say that Jesus suffered hell on the cross. Christ not only died a physical death, but He also endured a spiritual death. Complete separation and abandonment from the Father. On the cross He cried, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? Now people say that God turned His back on Jesus because He couldn't stand to see His Son being persecuted. That's dead wrong. God turned His back because He saw my sin and your sin upon His Son. He, God hates sin and He won't have anything to do with it. When Jesus was on the cross, He said, I thirst. And over there in John it says that He said, I thirst that the, the Scriptures might be fulfilled. So they gave Him a sponge full of vinegar. 
Have you ever stopped to think that he was thirsting for the presence of God? He wasn't thirsting for anything to drink, I don't believe. If someone has been brutally beaten to near death, what would make them cry out for something to drink? That would be the last thing on my mind. Jesus saying, I thirst, is speculated to believe to be a prophecy fulfillment of Psalm 69, where David said, they gave me vinegar to drink. But have you ever thought that it might be a little deeper than that? Maybe it's a fulfillment of Psalms 42. As the deer panteth after the water brook, so my soul longeth panteth after thee, O God. He was thirsting for God on the cross. It was complete abandonment from God the Father. He was there alone to die. And what did the Bible call David? He was a man after God's own heart. I believe Jesus was after God's own heart on that cross because the Lord was not with him. It was necessary for God to turn his back. That's what the punishment for sin is. That's what hell is. An eternal separation from God and anything that is good. Jesus suffered the full penalty for sin. Jesus paid it all. Not even the souls in hell know what Jesus went through. They faced the wrath of God drawn out in eternity, yet Jesus faced an eternity's wrath, an eternity's worth of hell in one sitting on the cross. He was marred more than any man. The nails in his hands and his feet aren't what saves us. He was marred by God himself. His persecution was from the Lord. What saves us is the fact that God's fury and wrath and anger towards sin, towards us, was placed upon Him. God's wrath was behind each stripe that He bore. He was our substitute. He stood in our place. That was our cup that we were to drink. And I'm saying this in love, but if you don't believe anything that I just said, that He stood in our place, if you don't believe that He was your substitute, then I'm sorry, but you're heading to hell. That's just the truth. And I, if I stood before God and didn't give you the full truth, I will be in trouble. How can you be saved if you don't know what you're saved from? As God poured out His wrath in Egypt, so His cup of wrath was poured out upon Christ. Let this cup pass from me. He was the Passover lamb. As the blood of an innocent lamb was required for God's wrath to pass over the children of Israel, so is the blood of Christ required that His wrath would pass over us. Isaiah 53.10 says, It pleased the Lord to bruise Him. The Garden of Gethsemane at the time was a place for pressing or crushing olives or grapes. And that word in Gethsemane in the Hebrew means just that. A place of pressing or crushing. I don't believe it's a coincidence, but rather by divine ordinance, that this was the place that Jesus, Jesus prayed to the Father to let this cup pass over Him. He was crushed. It was the great weight for Him to bear. It was in that garden that the sins of the world began to crush Him. And by the way, it is my sin and your sin that take part in that weight. Imagine the weight of the sin of the entire world. No man could bear it, let alone bear the punishment for it. 
For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. John chapter 10, verses 17 through 18, Jesus said, Therefore doeth my Father love me, because I laid down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. Those men did not kill Jesus on the cross. The cross did not kill Jesus. He laid down His own life and gave up the ghost at His appointed time. He chose to suffer until that final drop of God's wrath was poured out upon Him. That's why He cried up from the cross, It is finished! That was the last drop of God's wrath poured out upon Him. Paid in full, it is finished! All the work was done right there. He suffered hanging on the cross until the anger of God towards sin was appeased. God hates sin. That is the third time I think I've said it tonight. God hates sin. He is holy and just and pure and perfect. And He hates anything that is contradictory to His nature. Psalms 51.5 says, In sin did my mother conceive me. We are sinners at our very core, at our very being. We are the enemy of God even at our conception. And the fact that Jesus suffered in my place and your place is the most precious truth that has ever entered into this fallen world. Our sin is so great and so vast and so high that it took heaven's best to shed His own blood and become our propitiation and save us. That word propitiation means to appease the anger of God. I'll never understand how some people are just so apathetic towards what happens after they die. They just don't care. Or they don't want to face the fact that they are going to die. Some people believe, oh, well, I come back as an animal. Well, if you come back as a dog, why don't my dog know how to use the commode already? <laughs> but, but seriously, I mean, it doesn't even make any sense. It, it, there's no sense to it. I don't understand how people don't care because it's something that we're all going to face one day. It is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. And I can assure you that there will be a day that every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord and you will be judged. Paul said, I know whom I have believed. It is far better to say, I know whom I have believed right now than to stand before God on Judgment Day and say, I now know whom I did not believe. Will you be found guilty on that Judgment Day or will the blood of Christ cover your sin? If you aren't sure of where you stand with God tonight or whether or not you have a home in heaven, I beg you to please not leave here without making that right. It doesn't matter what you've done in life. Remember, Jesus saved the thief on the cross right next to Him. Murderers, thieves, liars, adulterers, it doesn't matter. Jesus' blood can make the vilest sinner clean. John the Baptist, when he first saw Jesus, said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. 
Salvation isn't just for a particular group of people. It's for the whosoevers. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If it was for a particular group of people, I probably wouldn't be allowed to be in there. I probably would not be saved. But it's for the whosoevers. Whosoever shall come. And you have to come by faith. Faith that He will save you from the wrath of God. Faith that He saves you from your sin and the punishment of it. Faith that you will be able to stand before God with His righteousness. And I don't think it would be a full gospel message if I didn't mention the resurrection real quick. But without Jesus rising from the dead, you can forget everything that I've said here tonight. Without His resurrection, there would be no hope for any single one of us. He rose from the dead to prove that He is God in the flesh and has power over life and death. And by His resurrection, He defeated death and hell and the grave so that we might never have to experience it. Through His resurrection, we can too have eternal life and be like Him. The work is already done. All you have to do is receive Him by faith. The Philippian jailer said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What did they say to him? Believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. I don't know how much more simple it can get. This religion where you have to confess and be baptized three times and speak in tongues, that don't make any sense. It's simple belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't have to drink of our cup. We don't deserve anything. We just deserve poverty. We deserve illness and we deserve hell. Us rotten sinners deserve hell, but I beg you not to walk over God's mercy line. There is a line that God draws in the sand. I don't know where it's at, but at a certain point, He's going to get tired of dealing with you. And we never know when our appointed time of death is. One of us could pull out on the 1960 tonight and it would be our appointed time. Death could come right around the corner. But out of His mercy, if you don't know Him, He's given you an opportunity here tonight to get everything straightened out with Him. John 15, verse 3 says, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. 1 John 4, 10, Here in His love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Romans 5, 8, But God commended His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We have a God of love. He is a God of wrath, but He is a God of love. And out of His love, He went to the cross with the joy set before Him and endured the cross for our sake. Now, I'm going to go ahead and close tonight, but I want to read a portion of Isaiah 53 to close, starting at verse 3. It says, He is despised and rejected of men. Now, keep in mind, this was written 700 years before Christ ever came on the scene. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
Let's go to the word. Go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the great gift of eternal life through the ultimate sacrifice that you made, Lord. We will never know what you paid on the cross to save us, Lord, but we know it is of great depth, and we thank you for all that you've done, Lord. You always went a little further, and Father, we ask that you please don't let a soul go go home without. Just getting things straight with you, Lord. I pray that a soul will be saved. I pray that your Holy Spirit will convict. And Lord, I pray that if you're speaking to their heart, I pray they don't sleep a wink tonight, Lord. I pray, dear God, that you would spend the whole night with them, Lord, and convict them that they might be saved. Father, I thank you for saving souls still to this day. You're mighty to save. And Lord, I pray you convict people, Lord. They come just as they are. We don't have to do anything. I thank you that we don't have to do anything. It's not of ourselves, but it's all of you. Father, I pray that you would bring us together again this week, Lord. And I thank you for the gathering of your church. And I thank you for your word, which I can trust in and put all my hope in. In Jesus' name, amen. If the Lord's speaking to your heart, please come. Ooh. Mm-hmm.